You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of splatterpictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Typical Lydia. Seasons Grievings. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2016 Christmas classic. Better watch out. Featuring a short, shocking stuffer of the 1989 piece of shit elves. That is some harsh words. And and Merry Christmas. For the second year in a row, we're recording a Christmas episode. And for the second year in a row, I went and visited my father beforehand. And for the second year in a row, I forgot to bring the Krampus bells that I wanted as physical sound effects. So I'll put in some shitty Christmas bells that I use every year. Same old Christmas jingle bells, sleigh bells, instead of actually having... Krampus bells to shake that came off of horses from my grandmother's farm. But uh, yeah, elves was a piece of shit. Oh, wait, wait. I can hear the jingling right now. They're coming back. Oh, oh we're surrounded by Christmas. It's magical. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so last episode, gang, we didn't really know what to do. We were waffling, or perhaps given the season, wassling between two Christmas classics. I was being harsh on elves. I know people like this movie. It is a fun watch. Uh, But after watching both the films, Lydia asked me, Wes, it's your decision. You're the Christmas guy. You love to do these Christmas specials because they remind you of Christmas specials when you were a kid, and that's why you make me do them. So She didn't say all that. But she did say, which film do you want to do? And as much fun as elves would be, would be to do for the show better watch out is just a better movie and where it's kind of fun sometimes to do a bit of a hit piece on a film that's not really the dead air style and it's certainly not within the uh spirit of the season so we're gonna do better watch out but however we will eulogize elves because this movie, gang, is a fucking freak show. It really is. And there's no politically correct way to apply proper Christmas wrapping to the the central idea of the story, which is Nazi elves. The Nazis have engineered elves that will wreak havoc and impregnate people of a certain family and it's it's having to do with incest there's incestuous themes there's animal cruelty scenes there is it's just a horrible shit show uh, although on the other hand there it is as christmasy so if you're looking for like a christmasy film if you enjoy birdemic or troll 2 you like those sorts of movies and you want something you know maybe as a background at a party i suppose because from what i understand people do that this would be really fun because it's got great Christmas scenery. There's lots of Santa. There's Santa dying. There's uh, Christmas lights. There's 
like a lot of Merry Christmas and Merry effing Christmas and like all sorts of Christmas wishes and you get to see all sorts of Christmassy places and they say Merry Christmas a lot in this film so it's got a lot of Christmas vibes on one hand but wow what was your most favorite thing about this film let's keep it positive for one more minute uh, the little brother in his Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles pajamas, where I can almost guarantee you I had the same the same pair when I was his age in 1989, because he would have been around my age to do it. Uh, I, I didn't peep on my sister. Uh, he says the line, and you might get it better than I did, but he says the line that I wanted to write down because my jaw hit the floor. When he was peeping on his naked sister and she tries to scold him for it and he says, you got big fucking titties and I'm going to tell everybody I saw them. And her response, of course, is, you're my fucking brother. There's a lot of F-bombs in this movie and those are two of the best ones. You know, like a few minutes later, he is terrorized by a puppet. You know, man, I like little puppet movies i like gremlins and ghoulies i'm a big i'm a big uh, champion of ghoulies i love puppet master and spookies and hobgoblin i love all that shit these are probably the worst looking puppets i've ever seen in any movie and I, like to the point in which i was watching this off of YouTube and it was like record, it was a grainy VHS copy complete with it fucking up at certain points during the broadcast. And the only thing that I could concentrate on was the fact that if this was in crystal clear clarity, it would only make it look worse. It needs to be this lo-fi, almost fever dream of a film and presentation because I, I, this is the, like, you, you pointed out Troll 2, uh, Birdemic is great, Rotar, um, Killer Condom, weirdo horror movies that exist that people basically watch as a prank. You're supposed to just be like, you're not going to believe this, guys. Or like watching things. Uh, just, just weird horror movies that barely count. Someone in the audience might point out, hey, Wes, what about Bonesetter? Yeah. Bone setter. Yeah. Soul Tangler. Two of our favorites. And and this is the perfect example of so one of the disconnects I have with normies, and I'm sorry if you consider yourself a normie, I don't mean my pejorative slang term to insult you, but when when people say that insert movie that costs two hundred and fifty million dollars is the worst movie they ever saw in their entire life. My thought is you need to watch more movies because elves from 1989 exists and it has to be worse than whatever you're talking about. It has to be. And I just think that there's things that exist that barely qualify as films. And, and this is one of them. And I just, I don't want to go on for too much longer, but I will say that there's a charm in how fucking weird it is, but I just, it's a mess. Like it's an absolute on every conceivable front, special effects, acting, editing, sound, everything is bad. 
Yep, everything is bad. I, I do enjoy how they name drop a lot of similar films. They they name drop gremlins. They they seem to sort of talk about troll, but I don't know. They talk about trolls. They keep calling this elf a troll um, at the beginning. But they also have some lines in here, like famous lines, like when there's no more room in hell, the elves will walk the earth with utter seriousness. Deadpan. I just... Here's here's a movie tip from me to you. You're don't evoke better movies in your bad script. Don't remind me that I could be watching a better movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, right? Don't remind me. There are Nazi exploitation films that that work and that are interesting and that are oddball films. There are weird oddball films. Like I kept thinking, I wish this was more sinful dwarf than it was elves. Like I wish it had better cinematography. Like you pointed out, it is uh, just wrong and bad on all fronts. But I, you know, if it had better sound quality, if it had better lighting, if, you know, I like the actors and they, I'm sort of sold by the cop and stuff like that. But like, they just, the blocking is bad. The timing is bad. Everything is bad. If it was improved, would it still have that like cult interest? No, it wouldn't because the story is too bonkers, too batshit bonkers. And when you put it on paper, like the Nazis engineered elves and there's this incestuous family that has been breeding the perfect mate for the elf. I'm like, I want to watch this movie. Well, unfortunately, this doesn't work at all. And I almost can't envision a world where that story is made to work other than something like Frankenstein's army. If you had the same sort of feel and the same sort of dedication and the maybe budget of something like that, where you're telling a total oddball Nazi exploitation film, but you want to inject more adult themes to it, then that would maybe work. But wow. Yeah. This dropped every, ball and it's just comes across as just super sexist and racist and not fun but Christmas cheery there was I said this to you while we were discussing it last week or a couple weeks ago off camera or off mic that there was an episode of community where the one of the characters who's a movie buff Abed was trying to convince people to watch this weird movie called that he called Portuguese Gremlins and it's supposed to be just like a ripoff of Gremlins that was made in Portugal. And you forget about it. It's it's like a one joke in the fucking show. And then during the credits, they play a full trailer that they made for the episode of Portuguese Gremlins. Uh, that joke trailer for Portuguese Gremlins is more entertaining than Elves from 1989. <laughs> Well, we're not going to give it too much more time, but I suffice it to say, as tempting as it sounds, as it sounded to me and Wes, I cannot recommend this no. to anyone except for a background noise joke film to play. That that really is it. And gang, by the way, if you if you like this movie, uh, sorry. Uh, Maybe <laughs> maybe one day when there's no other Christmas, when there's no more room in hell for other Christmas movies, we'll do elves uh, for the show proper. But for now, that's your shocking stuffer. 
Uh, now our main event is the 2016 film, Better Watch Out. Now this, technically, I'm going to, te even though I, okay, I'll watch it. This is technically a Lydia pick. So I want to, I want you, and you like this movie a lot. So give me the deets, Lids. How did you encounter this movie? Why are we doing it? This particular film, I had seen the one sheet. I thought it was a comedy, so I wasn't interested at all. And then I encountered Better Watch Out. When it first came out, I was semi-interested because I'm always interested in seasonal horror films. I mean, there are specific subgenres of horror that I like very, very much. But there's a soft spot for seasonal horror films, films to watch around the holidays. We have quite a few Halloween entries. There's always room for more. We have a couple Christmassy films, and I like films that don't mean to be Christmas horror films, you know, like the Hell House, not the Hell House that we watched for Halloween, but Hell House by Graham Masterson, that particular, or Richard Matheson, Hell House by Richard Matheson, that particular film is Accidental Christmas, things like that. But other holidays have very few to choose from. There's only like one Easter one that I know of or two Easter ones, maybe. And sometimes they're kind of like crime dramas. So they don't really count. Christmas horror, though, always way lots of room. There's lots of room for more Christmas horror films. Love them. It makes the Christmas season to me way more fun because I don't like typical Christmas stuff. I don't watch Christmas movies. I don't even watch Die Hard around Christmas. Once in a while, I like watching Elf because it's hilarious. But other than that, you know, I like horror Christmas movies. I thought this was a comedy, though, so I skipped it because I looked at that one sheet for whatever reason, and I thought it would be sort of like a scream-infused teen romp of some sort, and I was not interested. Chris watched it and loved it, so... He does hold a lot of sway when he loves a movie. I am more prone to check it out, no matter what I had thought of it before, because he has good taste in films, and he and I see eye to eye on the holidays more often than not, like 99.9% .9 of the time. So I was moved to check it out, and we watched it, and he owns it now. Uh, we, like, we like it that much, and we've watched it countless times. And I really, really like it. When I think of a Christmas movie that doesn't rely on Christmassy tropes. Last year there was some new Christmas horror and they rely on Santa Claus and stuff like that. I enjoy that, but this doesn't rely on stuff like that. It could be a standalone psychological horror really at any time of the year. Christmas is just adding some flavor to it, I think. So I, I enjoy that it's just sort of in the background, like Halloween movies that could take place at any time of year, but there's a Halloween just sort of backdrop to it all. I appreciate that very much as much as I appreciate something like trick-or-treat which is all about Halloween and has Halloween elements in the plot this could take place at any time of year and I think that's why I like it as a Christmas movie because it you know you don't have to have Christmas spirit to enjoy it well that makes a lot of sense but we've been beating around the bush what is this movie actually about even anyways Lydia that maybe you shouldn't dose your kid with uh, uh, inappropriate amounts of sleeping pills you don't rely on Zanny the nanny to take care of your kids, folks. Otherwise, their little brains can get fried and turn them into Hannibal Lecter-esque psychopaths. <laughs> well hidden. He seemed like quite, such a sweet boy, this dear Luke. Um, this film, you 
said on the one sheet that it looked like a comedy. Amazon Prime bills it as a comedy and doesn't a uh, comedy suspense to be specific. There's no mention of, of horror. The Wikipedia page does call it a psychological horror, which I think is more appropriate. I was definitely expecting something a little bit more lighthearted. It's not quite a funny games, but it's it's in the same type of weirdness and it has a taste of home invasion although the invasion is coming from inside the house kids uh the the thing that i remember vividly about this film coming out was that people fucking loved it and i'm not one to uh tout Metacritics and Rotten Tomatoes and all that kind of stuff, but it holds almost a 90%. And everyone was talking about this movie when it first came out, and it made me want to check it out because I like to uh, get a sense of where everyone's at with really popular horror movies because I'd like to see what everyone else thinks is good and if I also agree with them, if it's, if it's any good. And there was no real reason why I hadn't watched it. I, I wasn't like, fuck this movie. Um, I just didn't get around to it. And I remember seeing the, the DVD slash Blu-ray at, at the stores and there was one, I think the year it came out, I remember looking at it at the store and I was very tempted to just blind buy it. Just, well, everyone says this is a pretty good movie and who knows, it might be good for the show. And lo and behold, all these years later, it is good for the show. And I uh, was, when you had brought it up as something that we might do, or maybe I did, I can't remember. I think you did though. Um, I was, I remember being mildly surprised that you liked it uh, or told me that you really liked it and I had never seen it. So what the fuck do I know? But I guess I'm always like, oh, everyone said this movie's really good. And then Lydia also really liked it. I'm not saying you're a contrarian, but I am saying that more often than not, you seem less impressed with um, things that, because like I said, it did look like a comedy. It did look like a scream infused thingamabob like you had mentioned. And so I was just genuinely surprised. And I thought that there was something more to it. But again, my exposure to this was just looking at do you know, like, the, the worst part sometimes about actors is they can just look like they should be in comedies? And I really felt that way for everyone. First of all, like, sometimes you're seeing a, a one-sheet and fucking Patrick Warburton is in this. And, you know, we all love him in Scream 2 for the nine seconds he's in that movie. But for the most of the time, like, fucking Kronk's in this, like, Putty, this is definitely a comedy. Um, or And then the one clip, the one fucking scene that I had ever seen of it was like five to ten seconds of the paint can scene. And that was, it looked, I was like, oh, okay, so this this weird looking kid that looks like he should be in a comedy is freaking out because the paint can thing. And it doesn't look serious at all. Like, it does not look fucking serious. So I sat down to watch this film expecting something pretty mild and what i got was pretty sad it's a sad fucking movie where i was sad watching it where every death is fucking sad and the these characters relationships are fucking sad and 
I just, I, I, like, I just kept thinking to myself over and over and over again, where are the yucks? Where is this supposed to turn to a comedy? Now, when you get to the twist of this film, which happens almost at the midway point, there's, it, there's more movie after the twist than there is in front of it. And they blur the camera and they change and things go to a handheld mode. And then you see characters being kind of whimsical. I was like, oh, this is where it turns to like gonzo comedy. This is going to be like Final Girls or something like that. No, it's just sad. Just sad. <laughs> What's funny is my smile is getting bigger and bigger because I think it's it's great. When you told me that Prime had this listed as comedy, I said no fucking way because... Did they make the same mistake that I made? Did they look at the one sheet and go like, well, it looks like a kind of teeny comedy kind of thing. It's going to be like, I don't know. I likened it. I was talking to Chris about this last night, how, why I didn't watch it initially. And I thought, well, if someone had told me, oh, it's a Christmas dark horror comedy, sort of like Housebound is a comedy. I'm like, oh, okay. I like that sort of comedy. That's, that's what I could hope, but very little things hit that mark so I didn't think that this is what that was like the, and it's not at all because that is an actual comedy and this is not this is absolutely not this is a tragedy it is a psychological horror like any other psychological horror and it doesn't have a real proper redemption at the end either where you're like oh the spirit of Christmas fucking comes and saves us all which it's that's not what it's about like I said it is a horror movie that could take place in any time of year. Christmas just adds some brightly colored props to it, basically. That's really all that Christmas does for this film. But be that as it may, it is sad. I keep laughing because it's a comedy to me <laughs> as, you know, a lot of other horror movies become comedies to the horror lover. I'm also a fan of more extreme stories i love dark tragedies i love true crime and not because i fucking laugh at it there's nothing about true crime that is like to be made fun of or to take joy in other people's sadness but you can find dark comedy in like the most gallows humor things and this particular film is a pretty good example of something that those who have watched a lot of darker fare may find some comedy in it it's not laugh out loud though at all there's some there's a gentle undertone of mirth within some of the situations that these characters are put in and i think that the number one is in my little summary i had likened somebody here to hannibal lecter and he does not sell it and it's hilarious to watch a 12 year old kid be like i am the evil genius behind all of this destruction and mayhem and i know maybe that's a spoiler for this entire movie which also leads to my first real question. Did you see the twist coming, Wes? To be 100% honest, the twist was spoiled for me. So I knew going into the movie what the twist was. Okay. Unfortunately, I, I, I that that's sad. That's no fun at all. That is no fun at all because there's some fun in it. I didn't really know, but you can guess as you're going on in the movie, they try and plant some things like at the beginning when the babysitter is going to the house, there's like a black SUV that follows her for a moment 
and stuff like that. So they try and make it look like this is coming from outside the house. Mm-hmm. I bet you it's been ruined for so many people from social media because this made the rounds on all the streamers, it seems. Seasonally, it shows up on other streamers. It's been on Prime for quite some time. I didn't mean to make a rhyme. And it's like being talked about all over Twitter, right? So everyone probably knows. You don't watch this to have the twist, like a Shyamalan movie, which incidentally the blonde boy is from The Visit, and he plays mm. a quite comedic character in that. So maybe that's another way to expect comedy from this and why Prime has it labeled as such. But like, it's just being ruined everywhere. People go to this to watch it for the aftermath, not the setup. Yeah, was was um, was uh, the the character of Garrett? He was also in the visit. The blonde boy. Because the girl is from the visit. Did they get them both back for the movie? Oh, the girl was in the visit as well, as a sister. I think so. I'm gonna just look. Ashley was from the visit. Because the boy was the 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 blonde boy was the uh, they're they're both annoying young brother. Yep, they're both from the visit. They were the siblings in the visit. Well, this is fantastic. This is fantastic news. I was I was more intrigued by the fact that both the young boys are Australian, and I was very taken aback by their performances as young American teen boys, preteen boys, with such impeccable little kind of midwestern accents yeah that's uh that's pretty incredible they yeah sorry i'm just looking at the wikipedia page right now uh yeah uh olivia de jong played uh, becca and ed oxenbold played tyler brother and sister and they're back together in uh this film um i'm wondering so over the years one of the things that i was getting this movie constantly confused with was the babysitter and I almost did it again today, like as we were doing the show. And if you go and you look at the the advertisements for the babysitter, it's very similar. And so I would always think, wait, what was that Christmas horror movie that everyone really liked? Was that the babysitter? I'm like, no, it's not the babysitter. That's not a Christmas horror movie. And then, so I'm wondering if people just. That has way more comedy in it. Oh my god, yes. So I'm wondering if they just oh, it's a comedy. It's like it's like the babysitter. Um, so maybe that's it. But it's not really important. This film starts off with Luke and his friend Garrett, and they are being tween boys, uh, talking about girls and talking about how Luke has this huge crush on his babysitter. And he's also reading an article about how fear um, uh, can uh, get people in the mood because, you know, the, 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 the emotions of fear are so close to the emotions that are associated with sex. There's an old, um, there's an old quote uh, for horror that uh, there's uh, nothing wrong with a movie that gets your date to get a little closer to you um so you forget about it and we know that luke's babysitter is coming because his parents uh are going away you hear the term metrosexual which is i i can't remember the last time i heard anyone referred to as a metrosexual it's a very um 
it's a very old term these days. So I was like, fuck, man, here I am in 2023 hearing the word metrosexual for the first time in over a decade. That's cool. Um, but when the babysitter arrives, young Ashley, she is very sweet. She's moving. So this is her last hurrah. And the parents love her. Luke loves her. Everyone loves her. And Luke's going to kind of put the moves on her. It seems to be like he's got this plan. We're going to watch these horror movies. I'm going to bust open some champagne. And she's having some boy trouble. It's the classic. You're only dating jerks. Ricky and uh, who's that guy from before and uh, it's you you're in a, a fairly casual almost like WB style like teen drama much to my chagrin because if it weren't for what's coming up I would say oh this takes too much time but it's it's interesting to see this young boy whose voice cracks at any chance it gets who is this weedy little dink at times <laughs> who also comes across as like give it 10 years and this kid's going to be successful interesting good looking in 10 years but mm. he's just a little prototype of that he's he's the the wee little um what do I want to be? He's the Nintendo Wii version of that right now. He's just this like little dude and he's a child. He is like quite literally a child. We've seen hints that, you know, he still loves his mommy a little bit too much. He has what his friend Garrett calls the womb machine or something like that. That sounds like, mm -hmm. like it's the sounds of the womb to help young kids fall asleep better that he still uses because we know he still uses it. Because when Garrett finds it, he says, oh, you still have this thing. Do you still use this? And laughs at him. He says, no, no, I don't. And he shoves it back under the bed all embarrassingly. And to know any child or to have been a child, you know that that reaction means he fucking uses it every goddamn day and relies on it. So he's still a baby. So to see him like chugging champagne and lighting candles to eat their little pizza dinner and picking the mushrooms off the pizza like a picky kid. You know, it's just hilarious. So at least it has that in between some Christmassy things like carolers are coming by and they've decorated the house and they've got a wonderful tree. And there's a little bit of holly jolly just sort of sprinkled in amongst all this, like very laughable. And I think that that's maybe if anyone's finding comedy outside of just the very dark comedy of some of the stuff that goes on later on, there's a little bit of comedy to be had to see this child trying to put on the big pants and impress the sexy babysitter. I was initially confused about the ages of everybody's characters because even though he, uh, Luke does look quite young I didn't expect that he was supposed to be 12. Uh, Ashley also looked young but I was pegging her for maybe early 20s until they had that bit of dialogue where she says oh you're 12 years old and I was like wait a second so if he is five years younger than her they that's a point of dialogue very early on in the movie 
that means that Ashley's 17 years old. And I was like, this became kind of like, oh, maybe he's uh, like, you know, 18 years old and she's like in her like 24. I was like, eh, it's all right. Like, uh, like, but it went to like wildly inappropriate. I was like, whoa, 12 years old. I was like, even, even if she succumbed to his charms, it would be wild. It would be a wild plot point to put in this fucking film where I don't, I think you'd lose a lot of people with that one. And, and they keep hinting at this closeness that she is allowing herself to, um, you know, he rests his head on her shoulder, seems innocent enough. He has his hand on her thigh. She removes the hand. You know, she very much does act like an authority figure when he initially has the booze, but then relents. This is her last time, and they're essentially saying goodbye to each other. And and I was like, oh, I hope that, uh, you know, and then when she's watching the horror, because like, we're watching a horror movie, and uh, one thing is Ashley has gotten pretty on edge, right? Because you had mentioned the pizza that she didn't order and Luke didn't order. Uh, his dad uh, probably ordered it. Yeah, it did come with mushrooms, his most hated food. But there's probably nothing to be concerned with. Just like the just like the SUV that had followed her there. Probably probably just random person starting their car in a way that made it look like there was someone following them. Maybe the phone calls that she's been getting where there's no one on the other end are just random drop calls. You know, it could just be happens all the time. Yep. Busy networks, busy cell networks could be nothing. Probably nothing. Those sorts of things. And like the fact that she allows him to put his head on her shoulder. She's been babysitting him for half of his life since he was a little tiny person, like six years old as a mm -hmm. baby. So she's probably snuggled him, cuddled him, done all of those sort of motherly things in a way as a caregiver. So her holding his hand, grabbing his hand when she does jump watching this horror movie is just all very natural sisterly behavior that he definitely has his wires crossed there. She knows that something is wrong. He is a little distracted because of the fact that Ashley keeps getting phone calls and, and on her cell phone. Yeah. Sometimes they're mysterious. There's no one on the other end. Uh, sometimes it's Ricky, her, what is it? On again, off again, troubled bow. It's a, it's a relationship on the rock. She is moving. It's going to be, difficult for them and he keeps wanting to come over it's a plot point in horror movies that i always find really fucking weird uh i dated uh when i was a teenager people who babysat and i like the idea of like oh why don't i just uh come <laughs> on over there like that they would never occur to me because my brain is like well she's working um, yeah. Very weird, very strange, but she is on edge and he is moody, moody like a 12 year old because his horror movie liquor her up plan to make out with your hot 17 year old fucking babysitter is not working because and I'm sure he perceives it. The only thing that's stopping it is this Ricky guy. 
which is mental because Ricky, quite honestly, seems to be a pretty cool guy. And he really just wants to spend a little bit of time with her before she moves away. She's moving away from everybody. She's moving away from her kind of weird ex, Jeremy. She's moving away from Ricky, who she does seem to like, but needs to end it because they're moving away. And what are they going to do at 17? Have a long distance relationship? No way. So she's being realistic about it all. And, you know, she is babysitting. She's she's working. So she doesn't want to spend the whole night having this conversation until the kid goes to bed. And I think that that is really what sets him off and kicks his plan into phase two because he's offended when she says, maybe the kid will go to sleep. The kid, Wes. The kid. Um, she calls, uh, like, you know, you always be my little buddy. Like, man, I, like, I, I've been there, dog. When I was, um, like, 16, 17 years old, I was, um, I got in my black belt, I was teaching classes and I was like enamored with so many beautiful women that trained there. And, you know, they seemed so much older and sophisticated because they were older and sophisticated. So, and I kept trying to like hang out with them, like, you know, my very, my very non-existent game, trying to get these like, like 24, 25 year old, like women to like hang out with me and stuff like that. And like, it's a literal crime and and like but i was like don't worry i'm fine i'm i'm into it don't worry ladies like there's there's like a there's like a patheticness that only a delusional teenage boy can have in those types of situations and nothing is more of a cold compress on your ego than somebody referring to you as a kid when you literally are but um and and you know not whereof you speak and what you're asking people to do, and so it's it, it can be a really uh, shitty situation. But things are gonna happen to get everyone's mind off that. We got ourselves a home invasion, lids. We got ourselves a year next, a strangers, something. She is on edge. She's been on edge for the last hour. She's a little bit pissed off with Luke trying all these like drinking things and then there's like sounds outside every window and then they can see silhouettes of people outside the window and then there's someone at the door and she's going to the door and they're both kind of on edge a little bit like Luke's at least play acting being on edge and he's like well look through the peephole and she does and there's no one there and they have something knocking at the door and when they do open it Garrett busts in all like a normal like I can see a kid 12 years old being babysat, wanting to have a friend over, or the friend wanting to take advantage of that. I've seen, and I don't know if I've been in that situation before, because I was not hot enough to be the hot babysitter, I don't think, but babysitting kids and having their friends come over because they want to, like, pal around with the older kid kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I, can buy, I can buy this, but it pisses her off, of course, because Garrett has busted his way in there, and in an unceremonious way to scare them as well. And she's like, well, what were you doing skulking around in the backyard? And he's like, I, I just came in the front door. I didn't go over in the backyard. So she's on edge all over again. Then there's a smashing sound from upstairs as something has breached one of the windows. So she grabs a butcher knife 
and tells the kids to stay downstairs. And if you if you don't know the whole story, of course, at this point you might buy it because the kids are 12-year-old boys and they're like, don't leave us down here alone. So they all go upstairs together. This stalking scene is um, pretty effective. There's a good... Uh, but you can notice that... Um, Luke, for someone his age, is is not as scared as you'd think. He's trying to, like, take control of the situation. Don't worry. Uh, I'm going to get my dad's gun. Everything's going to be okay. There's a, there's a moment where she almost breaks her neck falling from the attic. Uh, because there's this spider, a Home Alone-esque loose spider in the house. Uh, and there'll be more Home Alone references uh, maybe where all the comedy ideas came from. And it all turns, Lydia, when Ashley makes an observation where someone breaks into the house. They got a fucking shotgun. They look like the goddamn Zodiac killer. They have a mask. Oh, wait, that mask looks a little familiar. And then she starts to put it all together very quickly in her mind. And she just bursts out of that closet, hiding from this masked stalker, a killer lids, to reveal that it is indeed Luke's little buddy, Garrett, who she had thought previously had been snipered outside, which is what got them to go hide because when they tried to leave, he apparently got shot. Um... Luke was like, is he hurt? What's going on? Like, very confused. He's acting like a little kid. But Garrett has not been snipered. No one's been snipered. And now Ashley is going to give these guys what for. She tells uh, Luke that he's mental. You need to go to therapy. A lot of it. What's crazy to me is that she didn't see through this somewhat earlier because this is the beginning of like sort of my only my only gripe about this is the believability. And I really don't like to have that gripe about a fiction because it's a it's a fictional story. Uh, yes, fictional stories are often based in reality, but you that's the point of it is that you're telling a story and you're stretching the boundaries of reality in, in whatever way. And you can stretch them a lot, like in a movie like Elves that we talked about previously. But you can stretch them a little bit here where... You could believe that these kids have the know-how to set up this ruse where, okay, so drinking wine, lighting candles, and eating pizza didn't work. Getting her jumpy with a scary movie and, like, snuggling up to her didn't work. Okay, so now I got a stage that there's an intruder, and he's killed my friend Garrett, <laughs> and he's punctured the tire on your car, and he's cut all the phone lines, and the Wi-Fi is down. And you can't leave this house because that brick that was thrown through the window said, you leave, you die. And they proved it by killing Garrett. That he's going to save her from this and she's going to fall into his arms like like during the mid point of the movie Maximum Overdrive and they're going to bang in the bathroom or whatever. Like, I don't know what fiction is going through his mind, but I don't buy it. I don't buy that she would fall for it and that he would come up with it. Unfortunately, that's my like my baby gripe about this film, because it does seem so involved to have this 
paint gun contraption set up in the backyard that's going to make it look like Garrett has been killed so that Garrett can sneak back in and don himself in the hunting gear and that hat, which we did see because while she's on the phone or whatever, just mildly wilding around this giant house that she'll never see again, that she's probably spent a lot of time in. She's looking at the family photos of a family that's probably very close to her with this kid that she's babysat for six years in these family photos. And one of them is them skiing and he's wearing this kind of almost jester looking black kind of hat that can be pulled over like a balaclava. So we've seen this hat as well. So she right away calls them out on it. I just, it's weird to me that she didn't like disbelieve any of this sooner. There was one point where she grabbed his hand during the horror movie and he just fucking jumps on her like a wild animal and tries to kiss her and she fights him off and he comes to his senses. But let's say for the sake of argument, it worked. And she's like, you know what? I will make out with this 12-year-old boy. Stranger things have happened. I can't imagine anything more illegal. But, well, I suppose murder, which, you know, crimes happen later. But this particular thing didn't work. But what if it did? Then, like, text message, calling it off. I've gotten to second base. Um, The second, the other thing, the other thing that's weird is the additive of Garrett showing up uh, prank. You don't, what's that element for other than the audience? Because would it not be enough? You're going to pretend if... If you pretended to break in, like you don't need the added element of Garrett unless unless you needed to show that they were serious by quote unquote killing somebody. It doesn't really make any sense other than the fact that you would need it for a movie. It makes the movie a little longer. This film is a brisk 89 minutes and it would also help deflect the audience from the twist that you're about to enact. So, but other than that, it makes no sense why Garrett needs to show up really because having somebody threaten you, throw bricks in, cut off your phones, that enough would be, would that would be more than enough to, uh, to make people think that you're serious, particularly if you're walking around with a shotgun and a balaclava, like you're going to kill somebody, they'll probably believe you. Maybe. Maybe, maybe believe you. And then at the end of the day, if you did shoot that guy in the balaclava, then what? You call the cops. You go to the neighbors and call the cops because your phone lines are down and your car is disabled. You don't like hop on the nearest fucking stiff meat. Like, I don't know. It's just it's just a warped idea. But he's being had. She tells him, tells him off, tell him he's a kid. Of course, she's not going to make out with him. What the hell is wrong with him? And as a rebuttal to that, he knocks her out and pushes her down the stairs, basically. I think he hits her on the head with the brick. This is where that was through the through the window. Yes. This is about where you can see this has escalated greatly. This innocent prank that Garrett was convinced of. And I just kept thinking of uh Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Uh or any sort of dual killers in movies as we know there's a more submissive one and a more dominant one that's Mindhunter 101 and so we see this dynamic developing 
as Garrett seems increasingly talked into things and they can act kid-like. By the time Ashley wakes up and she's tied to a chair, the escalation is hard for me to posit because like they're they're acting like little kids playing around almost as if Ashley's not there and it's almost as if they're back in their bedroom and Garrett's distracted playing video games. At this point he's running around on a like a razor scooter and they're just talking about fuck Mary Kill Adventure Time characters and talking about Princess Bubblegum's pussy, which I could have gone my entire life without thinking about. Um, the, there's there's a, a, a... It's weird. It's off. I don't get it. I don't get the tone. I find it very... Because, because to me, it comes off as if they're more organized and this isn't completely off the rails of what they planned. Maybe it's what Luke planned, but I don't understand Garrett's mentality unless he's, I, I see that they're drinking, so maybe they're drunk, and and that is making them kind of accept this weird reality that they're coming forward. And um, I just, uh, but Ashley, regardless of what I think of the scene, Ashley's in a bad way. She's tied up, she's duct taped, she is in fucking trouble and she thinks she has a concussion she's super angry and i think that the level of organization is only shown here in the most subtle way when uh garrett says he's on oxycontin because Mm. luke has fed him some oxys and he's been smoking weed and they are now they're drinking beer now straight up just drinking heinekens so like they've definitely screwed up i luke being that like the, the more sophisticated and organized of the criminals, calling them what they are at this point, he has fed Garrett pills to dumb him down and loosen him up and maybe get a little more compliance because there's one way to get someone to compliance is give them fucking opiates. So he's definitely not acting normal. But, you know, that's sort of like school talk. Like, here little 12-year-old boys, deviant 12-year-old boys, I will add, talking about screwed up stuff. It's not all like baseball players or Jason versus Freddy who wins the fight. Like it's far more like, uh, like screwed up shit that deviant young boys talk about and young girls, young kids in general. So I think it totally fits in that they just think she's out of it. So they're killing time. And I, I don't know. I never played word games like this cause I didn't have these sorts of friends when I was a kid. So I, I don't I don't really get it in that sense, but that's what they're doing to kill time until she wakes up. That's basically all that it is. Um, they carry on with the childish word games, another game I never played, Truth or Dare. And, but I do understand the universal rules of Truth or Dare is that you have to, and that the other unspoken universal rule of Truth or Dare is that it's basically an excuse for people to make out and touch titties, which they fucking take it to. Yeah, um, she gets a good line in by him asking about what it felt like for him touching her breast. And she was just like, felt like I was being felt up 
by a little boy. And I was like, hey, hey, hey that's good. That's uh, that's some powerful shit, man. Um, there's, they don't show anything. And that actually, um, that actually is a theme. Uh, I guess this movie is rated PG-13. Um, they don't really show anything in terms of violence or they don't show this kid grabbing her. And I was like, there's no way they're going to fucking show this kid grabbing this girl's tit. Like, they're not going to do that. And they don't. Um, the scene happens, but the camera is uh, is not showing it. Um, and it comes off. It's like it becomes deeply more upsetting to me. I feel like because your imagination takes over, um, you know, Ashley handles herself well in that situation. She's still trying to talk sense into them. She's still trying to reason with them. She senses Garrett's weakness. She tells about the time that Luke killed Garrett's hamster and lied about it. Um, she is trying any trick that she can to get um, get herself out of that situation. Reasoning won't work. She'll try to escape. She'll try anything. Um, but she's in a bad way because everyone is gone. The neighbors are gone. She's very isolated. It's a big house. Uh, the doorbell does ring, though. What's weird about Ricky showing up is that her phone has been dunked into the fish tank when the first initial banging at the door happened when it was Garrett earlier in the film. Uh, she was like, call 911 and went to throw her phone to the kid. And he like fumbled it into the fish tank. And so she's been without her phone. So when he says, you texted me and you told me to come over here, she's like, no, I didn't. And like knows that her phone has been out of use. So it turns out that Luke had texted Ricky to come over here. Luke's been texting all kinds of people to come over here. It's just it's just very weird what he's doing because I really thought at this point he's just waiting for Stockholm Syndrome to kick in. And he even sort of tries like to feel her up a little bit again. And she, he's like, do you like that? And she's like, yeah, I do. And then she knees him in the nuts. Like like you said, he's she's trying anything to get out of this situation that she can, whether it be verbal abuse or kicking him in the nuts. But yeah, Ricky has showed up. And they have her tied up in the kitchen. And he's like, where is she? And Luke's trying to, like, play defense and get him to go anywhere and, like, trying to talk him into going upstairs. And he hears noises. And Garrett's like, oh, I caught that rat. And that's what all the noise was, trying to, like, pass it off as something. And finally, Luke talks him into checking upstairs and tells him, like, she has cramps. That's why she's not here. He does get a baseball bat to the back of his head for his troubles. And I did get a little disappointed that it went down so easily until uh, Ricky manages to come to his senses while Luke is doing a weird fucking dance. Like he's like, there's some scenes where it's almost as if he's channeling a Patrick Bateman type character, but I don't, I'll, I'll t I'm going to talk about Levy Miller's performance more towards the end because um, I got some thoughts. But I think that I think that um, this scene works really well because he grabs the baseball bat. And you want to know what it did remind me of? It kind of reminded me in that movie Hush where the killer is terrified 
of that girl's boyfriend. And she's like, because he's fucking huge. And like Ricky is like a big guy. And at the end of the day, Luke is 12. And like, you don't need martial arts. You don't need like to be particularly well versed in fighting. You can see like when when Ricky is looking at a 12 year old kid swinging a bat at him, he literally just grabs the bat with his bare hand and then grabs the kid and slams him against the wall. There's an interesting thing that happens every time Luke gets hurt, which I really much enjoyed is this is a a well-off upper, upper middle class kid with a room full of toys and video games. uh, Very meek, very unassuming. He is not accustomed to being injured, and that is played well. It's like when he got kicked in the nuts, he like looked more hurt than like almost there's like this like pain for me? What? Like it's this disbelief in when bad things happen to him because of his actions. But Garrett to the rescue brandishes a shotgun. And that gives uh, Luke enough time to hit Ricky in the head with a baseball bat. A lot of blood. Um, I was expecting this film to be a lot more violent than it was, just based off of a few things that I had read online. But it it definitely is not as violent as I was assuming that it was going to be, because I I hadn't put together the obscure well the obscuring of him grabbing her breast, I just assumed, well, everyone here is actually underage. Like, you can't film this fucking scene. It'd be gross if you did. It's gross that it's happening, but it is a fiction. This is a story. But Mm -hmm. it'd be gross if you made the actors do this. Um, And they don't. And so when it came to the violence, and there's a pretty big pool of blood on the ground, a pencil in the fucking face, which was great, um, I definitely... I definitely thought, oh, yeah, this is going to be like a super duper gory movie. And it is kind of, but not really. The pencil in the cheek is great. And it is like the first of very, very few gory scenes. But I I could see those being unaccustomed to very grotesque horror, thinking that this is gross. It's a PG-13 movie. There's a lot more people watching it. It was all over every streamer and the social media. So even more people watched it. So and it's a holiday movie, so a lot of people are like, "Oh, a holiday horror! Let's watch that." Uh, it'll be like Gremlins or whatever. So it was probably very grotesque to those people, so they might have been like, "Oh, it's a gross-out film," uh, even though to seasoned fans of the splatter pictures genre, because <laughs> uh, yeah, it it isn't necessarily oh. a splatter picture by any means. But I I do like the pencil in that it it tells us a couple things that Luke knows what his mom is doing. Luke probably tongues his sleeping pill every night. He He's probably tired of being treated like a child, and she's, like, ramping up the efforts in that she dr- drugs him every night, turns on his little womb machine so he can sleep well, and then when she puts him in his room, she puts a pencil on the doorknob so they can tell if he's sleepwalking or gone roaming at night, which is just such a weird thing for a parent to do, like ultra fucking weird for a parent to do. And she hides it under the carpet runner in the upstairs hallway. And she's like, what he doesn't know won't hurt him. And it's like, he just probably noticed this pencil. He probably hears you put the pencil on his doorknob every night and isn't stupid because he's 12. And he's also like um, 
a glorious psychopath to the level of Patrick Bateman or Hannibal Lecter, don't you know? So he knows that this pencil is under there because he's probably walked over it and been like, what is that? Oh, that's that pencil mom keeps putting on my doorknob because he's not broken headed entirely. So him to just grab that pencil like it's the most convenient weapon at hand because he knows exactly where it is, is so perfect because it telegraphs so much about his awareness of the way he's being treated. The fact that his mom has just been ramping up her efforts to keep him a little boy, which has done nothing but break his brain, I think. So I really I just love everything about the pencil. And it is pretty good effects to have that pencil straight through. And they use that in short order that hole in his cheek as maybe another comedic moment. If someone's really looking for comedy in this and they don't know where to find it, this is maybe the only sort of comedic moment. Are there any other moments in comedy or horror films where somebody has a hole in their cheek and smoke comes out of it? Because it seemed vaguely familiar to me. You know... I remember watching that scene and thinking the exact same fucking thing that I've seen something similar to this before. And I don't know, like if it's the, the woman in Beetlejuice who's like smoking through the, the hole in her neck, uh, that could be it. Or if I'm thinking of another primo, uh, example, but, um, it seems like there is more scenes where that type of stuff happens. Um, Ricky, the character, is, I think, comes off as a lot more likable than I was expecting. And I think that Alex uh, McKick is doing a really nice job with what is a pretty bare-bones character who isn't in the movie terribly long. But I was kind of expecting big, dumb, varsity jacket the, the, like the ultimate giga chad enemy of a meek psychopathic boy who just wants the 10 out of 10 blonde babysitter to notice him but oh wouldn't you know it she's got a shitty boyfriend and what you get is a dude who isn't this enemy that you think he would be he is articulate and he is concerned for ashley he wants to talk to her um, he is trying to reason with the boys as well. He has uh, a, an intelligence to him. I, I really dug the character, and it only makes what happens to him more fucking sad because I was not necessarily thinking that the smoke thing in the cheek was particularly funny, although it could be interpreted as funny, but I was getting like Eden Lake vibes where it's just kids like, torturing um, a man and there is this debate that has been going on about between Luke and Garrett and you've seen this all over the internet for literally years this theory on Home Alone which is as old as Kevin McAllister grows up to be Jigsaw it's a thing that seems as old as fucking time and it seems every year you hear about it but in this instance it's did you uh, you know that all the things that Kevin does to those uh, burglars would actually kill them, right? I'm like, yeah, I, we've all seen the 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 gel skeletons or the gel heads like get hit by paint cans and die. But these boys are having this debate about whether or not you know a ten pound paint can hitting you 
from a, a good distance would kill you or not. It will. So don't try this at home. But Luke gets this idea in his head that he is just going to do it. Now, this is where the the plan that Garrett is aware of and the plan that Luke is executing are two fundamentally different things. Because initially, you're like, how do they expect to get away with all of this? Well, they're just going to basically roofie Ashley after their night of truth or dare debauchery or whatever the fuck they're going to do. I mean, I have some ideas. But um, then she is, he, Garrett's going to go home. He's going to go upstairs to go to sleep. And you are, have gotten into the liquor and you're going to be passed out drunk and you're going to, and we're going to slip you this shit. And then you're not going to remember anything like you. And, and so it's just going to be, you were celebrating moving and you got super drunk. Now Ricky has shown up and the plan seems to be what? Like, so everything is going to be okay, I guess, once they figure out what to do. But Luke just goes ahead and kills Ricky in the only thing that I could see being played for laughs. But again, it comes off as so fucking sad. And they obscure it because they can't show the actual violence because of the PG-13 rating. But I have an absolute clear understanding of what happened to this guy's head. It fucking erupted. Basically, yeah. And the splatter of the yellow paint that they use and mix with the red blood, which is a, a good color combination. And I think that it's made even more grotesque and dark when Luke refers to Garrett as looking like a hot dog after this scene because he's so covered in yellow and red. And it is mm-hmm. shocking because it's shocking. Ashley f- loses her mind. She just about barfs. Garrett is totally taken aback because his, not only because his friend's a murderer and there's a dead dude strapped to a chair in front of him now, but his idea of this whole paint can thing was that it would just knock him back. So he's doubly taken aback at a kid level where he's like, I really thought it would just knock him back. So he's shocked as shit and has lost a lot of faith in his friend where he becomes a little bit of Ashley's savior at this point because he, 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 he's not succumbing to Stockholm syndrome. He's not too drugged or drunk out of his mind to just go along complacently with his psychotic friend. He's going to side with Ashley a little bit eventually. And you know, yeah, it is, it is absolutely dark. It reminds me a lot of movies like, or the books like let's go play at the Adams or the book, The Girl Next Door, extremely dark, unsupervised children doing horrific things and not understanding the consequences, but having some sort of plan amongst the older or more sophisticated or craziest kids of the bunch that everything's going to be okay because we're just going to take care of it. We're going to slip her roofies? Like, what were they going to do? A roofied woman that one of them has the hots for and the other is just sort of tagging along being complacent? That's terrifying and very much... Uh, portrait of a serial killer very much like that very much Eden Lake like they're going to do terrible things terrible fucking things and it's uh, it's a horrific scene 
from end to end. I think the only things that are funny is Luke's constant voice cracking and the whimpering he does. Like you said, when he gets hurt, he just whimpers and crumples and it's hilarious. And the smoke thing that they're all laughing and they're like, just make him smoke weed because he's going to do some crazy reefer madness inspired bullshit that gets him killed. It, it's so outrageous. Luke's logic to Garrett seems to be, well, you were the one that smoked weed in the house and they're going to find a joint and that's against the law. Like murder is more against the law. Garrett rightfully points out it was one fucking joint, dude. Um, when Ashley manages to cut through her bindings during all this, um, their original plan of her and Ricky to escape and she escapes outside, Garrett does pursue her and very clumsily tries to get a hold of her. She's partially attached to the chair, but she does make it over the fence and she because she hears carolers and she's going to head towards them. She does get beamed by a rock and is unconscious again. And I'm like, man, this whether she was saying she had a concussion or not, Ashley has been through the ringer, man. She got hucked down the fucking stairs. She probably does have a concussion. And then she just got beamed in the head with a rock. And that alone would warrant a trip to the hospital. But she is um, going to get wrapped up in Christmas lights for her trouble. I need to point out that during all of this, like Luke has like uh, wardrobe changes, which I find very funny because there is, I think one of the things that is very fun about this movie that I like quite a lot is the visuals. And I haven't really like taken time to talk about them very well, but you know, the, the, the house is immaculately decorated like a Hallmark movie. And Luke um, comes from a very prim and proper family. His, he's a very neat and tidy guy. Like when Ricky pees himself out of fear, like he's immediately cleaning it up. He's immediately uh, wiping things down, wiping the bat, the bat down. Now, a lot of it's probably to cover his tracks in the crime scene, but it also just comes off as very funny watching this murdering psychopath like put on like rubber dish gloves and start like cleaning up around people because it's like hey the floors like and then he puts on this ridiculous christmas sweater which is like the third or fourth outfit he's put on and he just looks straight out of like a demented hallmark movie listening to Kaler's, handing them chocolate uh like hot chocolate and just being the absolute king of christmas where you would just be like, oh, what a prim and proper, well-behaved boy. Which is why he speaks to, uh, he does speak to that Patrick Bateman, to that Hannibal Lecter. Um, he doesn't quite hit the level of charm. I think that the f role was demanding of him. But I think that was really more in, sorry to say, the acting ability of Levy Miller as opposed to the way that the script was written, I wasn't buying a lot of it. Like I wasn't buying his, I felt like he should have more charisma, but at the same time, since he is so young, he's kind of a fuck up. So it's this delicate balance that you have to do um, in order to like deal with this. Now, all that to say, 
He has two very good scenes coming up that I really fucking liked. Um, and that is uh, when uh, we got another person showing up, uh, Jeremy, who I don't know how, like, okay, when Ricky shows up and he's got his leather jacket and his flowers, like, looking like, uh, you know, a, a fucking stock boyfriend card that would be included in Dream Phone. I'm like, all right, this guy's definitely a fucking douchebag, right? No, he's a super nice guy. He's intelligent. He's well-spoken. He's trying to help. He's trying to, like, calm these boys down and get the, get them out of here and shit like that. And I was sad when he died. Then you see Jeremy show up, like, in his big puffy jacket and his stupid scumbag Steve backwards dollar hat. And you're like, oh, okay, 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 okay. This guy's a douchebag, right? And you're like, oh, he's, like not confident and he's like trying to like work on what he's gonna say to Ashley because he's been brought there under the guise of like Ashley wants to talk to you and he's like you know uh, Luke inter intervenes and like gets in the way and says you need to like she wants like an apology you gotta think about what you're saying and so he's sitting there like simple Simon outside in the snow like writing his like I love you so much and I'm sorry for everything I did, little blah, blah, blah. And I just get fucking sad all over again when I watch this man slowly hang to death. <laughs> oh, it's a laugh riot, isn't it? It is just yucks a minute, this fucking movie that is not a comedy, I will add. But yeah, uh, he is the Chad, the Giga Chad with the heart of gold, but he is like a major douchebag you would think that she has a type and this is going to be another like leather jacket flower bearing guy that offers to go buy you tampons kind of dude but it's not and he's he's like giga chad but he's simple and gullible so gullible and i can see like there's none of this douchebaggery that she probably left him for he's just dumb he's dumb as a post so like that's probably the only reason they broke up because he's stupid but yeah, and it is a long protracted hanging scene. Like some of the best, like in Dream Home, that was probably the worst strangulation scene and hardest to watch. This one's pretty, pretty mm -hmm. good. It's hard to watch. It goes on as long as it, maybe not as long as it would take. And again, they don't focus in on things that a more horrific horror movie or a more extreme horror film or a foreign horror film would do. Where in a foreign horror film, Maybe they wouldn't have shown the 12-year-old feeling up somebody else. And maybe they would have cut away, like they do here. When Garrett points out, hey, you have a boner from touching his babysitter, they they don't, like, show that or, like, even show a mock-up of that, which is respectful because it is dark, illegal territory, right? Um, and they don't show the paint can devastation. They show a body strapped to a chair and there's a paint can dangling in that spot so you can't see it's a good blocking uh here they just film from maybe the chest down of what the body is doing thank god because it's it's not it's it's a, it's a terrible terrible thing so they do a good job of that it's the length of it that is the horror of it all and the fact that mm -hmm. this little psychopath has staged all of this because just as he finishes hanging, he drops the note that says, I'm sorry for everything, Ashley. I love you. Last thing that I wanted to say about that protracted hanging scene is 
like of all the things in the movie, it's probably the second most upsetting thing that happens in this entire film. And again, like long for some reason, I think it is what you say, because hanging scenes are not necessarily gory. They tend to get past censors. Um, like the hanging scene in Mad Men is also brutal to watch. It's very long. Uh, that's actually a little bit more horrific because of like the whitening of that character's eyes and shit like that. Or like the the kid uh, getting hanged in the shower in Final Destination. That's a very long, brutal hanging scene. Uh, this is just, I was just watching this and I was like, this guy had no idea what the fuck was going on. And he just hung to death. Like, you know, at least Ricky... I mean, perhaps it's more of a mercy that like that that Jeremy didn't know anything. But meanwhile, things have gotten out of hand and Garrett and uh, Ashley convinces Garrett. We're like, you didn't know this got out of hand. He lied to you, but it should become very obvious now. He wanted all of this to happen. um, Ricky was always meant to come here and be killed. Jeremy was always meant to come here and be blamed. Um, this is all part of the plan, and Luke has been lying to you. So you're just gonna get cut me loose. We're gonna run to the neighbors, and we're gonna get some help, and it's gonna be fine. You were duped. There's no shame in that. Let's get out of here. In mid dialogue, in one of the most abrupt and brutal, this is a 12 year old boy. Um, he is hit with buckshot from that fucking rifle and goes flying. And it's almost, almost as shocking the way that they do it as, um, in that movie edge of darkness. I don't know if you've ever seen that where like the woman opens her front door and is just fucking shot, but uh, we find out later why, but it, this reminded me of that. Just like this absolute abrupt thing of violence. And this realization, both on Luke's part, as he seems to be upset at what he's done, but more almost as if reality is sinking in on Garrett and you watch him slowly revert into the little boy that he is. And he asks for his mother and that sentence doesn't even get out as he's shot in the fucking face. And, of course, you have Luke screaming, look what you made me do. In typical mm-hmm. narcissist, blame everybody else, psychotic fashion. And I don't mean to, like, armchair diagnose somebody who, as Ashley appropriately said earlier, needs a lot of therapy. Needs m- more than therapy now. And he'll have a, he should be tried as an adult for all of this stuff at this point. But, yeah, it's, you wonder, like, what was the real point here? Killing Garrett was kind of an accident. You can tell it's not really part of the plan, but everything else was. Did he just want to wipe out all of her ex-boyfriends? Was it a, if I can't have you, no one else can, and then he's going to still roofie her? But he's out of roofies, thankfully. Like, what? What is the plan here? Ashley, when things calm down, Ashley says, you were never going to let me go. And he says, guilty. This was always the idea. I I don't know if I don't know if Garrett was always meant to die, but yes. This was never trying to get with Ashley. 
and then roofie her and then we all go back to our normal lives because she's never going to remember anyways. This boy became obsessed. He coveted Ashley. And if I could use a Hannibal Lecter line, how do we begin to covet? Do we seek out things to covet? Make an effort to answer now? No, we covet what we see. And he saw Ashley all the time for years. And also, while she was babysitting him, heard stories. She was young. I bet you Jeremy was her first boyfriend. And then he just grew in jealousy because he became more and more attached to this older woman, much like his mother, a caregiver, an older, beautiful caregiver. Um, and then Jeremy's out of the picture. Oh, thank God she broke up. Now my chance is here. Oh no, Ricky. Oh no, this other douchebag. This guy's a jerk. And he hears her complain about her boyfriends because people on occasion complain about their partners and get frustrated with their partners. And when you see the processes of beginning, middle, and end of a relationship, you see the avalanche of that. And he builds up this resentment, this resentment because he wants this person that he can't have. And that turns to anger. And that turns into, if only all of these boys were gone. And then I'd be there, but oh no, because she's just going to find another douchebag because isn't that what girls do, Lydia? Don't they only just date douchebags and not nice guys, high quality males like me? I'm a nice guy, aren't I? Well, if she is just that type of person, well, I hate her for making me love her. And since she hates or since I hate how she makes me feel, I'll kill her. And then I won't have to feel bad about that anymore. And everyone that makes me feel bad dies. And that's it. There's so many psychotic men out there that you could, I could play that for and they'd be like, oh my God, I feel so seen. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. It's not funny. Um, it's not funny at all. Uh, domestic abuse not. and warped psychology of typical, so-called typical. I was having a conversation with my sister not long ago with, if you ever hear somebody say, normal couples don't fight or healthy couples don't fight slap them slap them in the face as hard as you can because healthy normal couples don't fight news flash people that fight and have makeup sex or whatever and are like oil and water and like two cats in a bag or whatever no that's not normal that's unhealthy that is some weird ass gaslighting bullshit to lead you to believe that abusive relationships are normal and they're fucking not but I have to go back and blame the most beautiful Virginia Madsen playing the mother here for drugging her child from an early age and warping with his psychology. You know, people are to a certain extent born bad, which Luke may have a little bit of that. He may be made bad by being given sleeping pills most of his formative life his brain hasn't stopped growing as people like to say your brain doesn't stop developing until you're 21 his has been growing in the wrong way for quite some time unchecked you could blame the privilege you could blame video games there's actually a sign in his bedroom that says the video games made me do it which is fucking hilarious and just a little thing that I didn't notice until maybe the sixth time I watched it the other night so like there's so many things to blame so to speak but you know so many people would 
listen to what you just said and be like, oh my God, that's the way I've been behaving. Because so many people behave that way. So many people think the way Luke thinks. They maybe don't take this cartoon level action. Well, they certainly don't because it's fucking crazy. And it's still my only baby gripe with this movie is just like, as if, no way. But I guess that's part of the fun of it, eh? It's a bit of a groaner. Maybe it's not a comedy, it's a groaner, Wes. You might be right. This excellent scene between Garrett as he dies and Luke is followed by another excellent scene between Ashley and Luke. As Luke tells the story of his mother laying with him, rocking him, he could hear her heartbeat, and it being comforting. He felt loved, he felt safe, and all of a sudden she stopped. And Ashley, he doesn't know why she stopped. And Ashley says, I know exactly why she stopped. And he demands an answer from her. And she closes her eyes and refuses to speak. And he is goading her into uttering any phrase, like call me, like call me insane, call me a monster, call me anything, just say something, say anything. And she refuses she refuses to speak, which is her last act of defiance. The only thing that she could do anymore. She is completely tied up. Everyone involved with the situation is dead. No one can help her. He's admitted that she's never meant to leave this place alive. And he does indeed cut her throat. Is this the most sad scene you'd say? This scene is incredibly sad. Um, I love Ashley's performance in this scene. I also think that uh, uh, Levy Miller does a good job. Luke does a good job in this scene as well. It's both heartbreaking and effective. Although, like, it's a close contender with the, with Garrett's death scene. That's also very sad to me. I always hate to see a, a misguided ragamuffin uh, get, uh, get killed for just being friends with the wrong guy. But uh, this will teach you kids to have a spine. And uh, there's this there's this uh, melancholy to everything for about eight seconds. And then he's fucking hipster dancing. He is listening to his Christmas music and he is cleaning up and he is setting the stage for what I guess is how he plans to get away with it all. Which involves a second pencil because he thought of everything, maybe a little late to the game he's thought of everything but he's thought of pretty much everything so he puts the shotgun in jeremy's hand with paint on it he's already got that suicide note so perfectly planned now his dancing around isn't exactly like risky business level of of joyousness <laughs> so there is a, a macabre quality to this um young patrick bateman he doesn't have that same sort of suave like when he has his christmas sweater on He's still just a weedy little kid in a Christmas sweater. He doesn't have that Patrick Bateman with mistletoe sort of sense of, like, terror that he invokes within you with it at all. So, yeah, even even this, you know, it's I'm still struggling to be like, why did they label it a comedy? And why was I convinced it was one before I watched it? It was so weird. 
But yeah, this is not a comedic scene necessarily, but it is interesting because it harkens back to all those times that he's been like, don't mess this. Don't smoke weed in the house. Oh, you animal, you peed on the floor. Let me get my gloves on and clean it up. So he's cleaning everything. And it's partially his steadfastness as a privileged youth or also his covering up the crime scene. And he's like putting all the hunting gear back and putting the he'd already put like the lights that he had shining on the house from outside away as cardboard cutouts and standees of Christmas things. They've even got that big Santa that seems to appear in the house, much like the clown from Hell House to scare people. I don't know how he moves that around so stealthily, but he's putting everything back. And then he remembers, oh, shit, there's a pencil hole in the cheek of Ricky so he has to go and get another pencil because he's already hidden his pencil that he will have to have on his door so he's thought of everything 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 he gets himself into bed with his little sleeping pill and his little womb machine on just just in the nick of time as his parents are pulling in so I kind of like the scene when he has to climb out one window across the roof outside knocks down the damn deers and has to put the stupid deer Christmas decorations back up while his parents are still on their way pulling in the driveway he's trying to not be noticed and to sneak into his room lay down calm his heart rate (laughs) and wait for the screaming to begin. This might be the scene that has the most comedic elements in it because it definitely has some teen hijinks, uh, like trying to cover up after a party before your parents get home. But I mean, and if it wasn't for all the very sad deaths that I just witnessed, uh, I might actually think this scene was kind of funny. I do like his catching that candy cane. I even said out loud as I was watching the movie, ooh, nice catch. Everything seems to be going his way. The cops arrive, you know, there his his mother is cradling him like she did when he was a babe. And he is hearing her heartbeat, he feels comforted, he feels safe. But just like a scream movie where someone in ADR says, "We got a live one here." And then all of a sudden, just someone's just alive. Uh, Ashley. Now, she did plug up her wound with duct tape. One of the paramedics says, oh, a smart girl. She saved her blood. I'm like, it's a weird way to phrase that. But she did manage to save her own life. And in a final act of defiance as she's getting wheeled away and Luke is watching as his plans unravel, She gives him the finger. How many fingers am I holding up? Just one. That was kind of hilarious. And I harkens back to an earlier line when Luke is duct taping her up and he says, thousand and one uses for duct tape. Yes, there are, Luke. There are. And your plan is now foiled. As foiled as the foil color of duct tape. And I forgot the kind of not post-credit sequence because they begin the credits and then they stop them long enough for Luke to turn to his mother and be like, I'm worried about Ashley. Can we go to the hospital? Such a nice, perfect ending. I've talked, Chris and I have talked a couple times about a sequel to this. And I've come up with Mm -hmm. a couple different scenarios over the years. I I would love to see a sequel to this. I would just love to see a pickup of that exact same night when his mom, doting mother that she is, takes him to the hospital to see Ashley and does it just continue with him relentlessly trying to kill her or is there a revenge thing or is there a 10 years later 
Maybe she doesn't turn on him. Maybe she dangles this over his head for the rest of her life and they meet up again. Or maybe she gets him thrown into jail and he goes through a psychiatric unit and 10 years later he escapes or something. I like, I would love mm. to see a sequel to this film and they set it up so perfectly for one. Yeah, like a Psycho 2 type thing. I was going to say, well, I, I mean, this is a few years ago and all those kids have, have aged up. I, I looked them up on the internet, but listen, they could just pull the orphan route and just be like, doesn't she still look like she's 12? You get it. I'm like, yeah, all right. And they're <laughs> Orphan 3 in theaters uh, shortly. But um, they could just do that. It's like, oh, yeah, he's 13 now. And he's like fucking like a ripped 25-year-old. And you're like, yeah, all right. Maybe uh, he doesn't look as metrosexual as he used to. Um, but, yeah, I think this film, I want to I wanna say some, some positives. Because I feel like, I don't know if I've been positive or negative or neutral. Um, I think that what this film has going for it is a very likable cast and a pretty interesting story. The aesthetic of Christmas is really immaculately done. It's shot and filmed well. The only thing that I'll say as likable as the cast is, I feel as though the gravitas of the situation never came through from the characters, even from, uh, even from characters who like Ashley or Ricky never really seemed as scared as I felt like he ought to have been. And Luke never really hit the perfect amount of sinister charisma that I was kind of looking for. But then I was imagining that I was looking at a budding serial killer in his larval form. So perhaps he would become, uh, again, as Hannibal Lecter said, he's refining his methods. He's evolving. So there's there's a chances for that as well in my headcanon, I suppose, later on down the road for the character of Luke. I think that watching him bumble a few times was was very good. It was it reflected the fact that, you know, I don't know if I would like this movie if you would forget that he was a kid. If he was just like, well, he's supposed to be 12, but he's basically just acting like a psycho little adult. Like if they tried to do like the good son or or something like that in terms of like killer kid movies. So all of that is good, and I, I just uh, I, I just don't know. I don't know. Like I was hoping that I would like it a lot more than I did, but at the same time, I did like it. Does that fucking make sense, or am I basically just talking out of my ass here? Well, it's better than us watching Elves thinking we would like it more than we did and disliking it so goddamn much that we didn't want to cover it because we didn't want to have a whole hour and a half of us saying, what the fuck, man? But, you know, <laughs> RogerEbert.com, uh, whoever was reviewing it there didn't like it at all. Got one out of four stars. Really bad, really bad review for RogerEbert.com, who have been giving things a little more slack, I find, as time goes on. They get a little more open fucked up in this uh, and they do like some very fucked up movies but they did not like this one even though like so many other people did and it's got a good tomato meter and stuff like that so yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know I, I don't think you're alone in that and there's some very dislikable things that go on in this film for sure but I have uh, a lot of fun with it it's a great holiday 
thing if you're not full of cheer if you are a bit of a scrooge in on one respect and if you like christmas horror that isn't 100 christmas themed it doesn't need christmas to be part of the story it's not a christmas horror story which is another really great film that i love to watch Mm -hmm. Uh, really really great film but it requires christmas as part of the plot this could take place at any time if you just want to study in a, in a young serial killer who will, you know, looking at how badly he bungled everything, he should never kill again because he's no fucking good at it at all. But it is also a crime of passion too, right? So it, it could be a singular thing. And that could be part of what people would feel ripped off about that, you know, it's really just this weird hormones run amok story. Triple sad, if that's what it is. But you know, you're not alone in, in being confused as to why you like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just think it's a well-done movie. It might have just been that comedy tag. Maybe if I, I, if I went in knowing the tone immediately, I might have been more prepared. But there was a time when I was like sitting back on the couch and I'm like, la, 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 I'm going to watch this horror movie. And I was like looking up some things. Uh, because that's how I watch movies. Like I look up actors and I look up shit. Um, and I put my phone down and I, it had me engaged. So in that it did what the movie was supposed to do. And I will give it, it had my complete attention. So I, I, I definitely understand why so many people like it. I just was expecting to like it as much as everybody else. But I think I just maybe was just Maybe I was just looking for the yucks. Like, where are the... I was told comedy. It says comedy, suspense. There's suspense. But I don't find any of this funny. And I, like I've said 50 times, it's very sad. Like, it's just... I've And, and in a way, isn't that what you're... Aren't you supposed to feel bad for people getting killed in these horror movies? I normally don't. I normally think like, ah, fucking douche baggins over here just died. I felt bad for douche baggins, Lids. Well, Christmas is a sad time of year for a lot of people. So I think it really reflects a little more of our zeitgeist, especially over the pandemic when this, you know, it did come out far before there was any sort of virus in the air. But I think that it hit its stride in streaming when people were like scared, confused, alone and sad over the holidays. So they were like, yes, this reflects how how I'm feeling. And that's why a lot of angry people listen to angry music because it helps. It helps calm them down because they're like, oh, I'm not alone in my anger. Nothing nothing sets you over the edge when you're angry than country music. And nothing, you know, makes you more angry over the holidays when you're not big on the holidays than Christmas cheer. So I think that this being a real downbeat uh, entry into the horror, Christmas horror, is, is helpful to a lot of people. And it helps. It's a cheery movie in that way. Nothing better than a little cup of eggnog after this. I got some eggnog uh, in the fridge. I'm going to have an indulge in a little bit. I can't drink as much as I used to, Lids. Uh, uh, It just doesn't agree with me anymore. I'm getting older. But um, it's still delicious and tasty, much like this. But what do we got next for him, Lids? We have the most tasty entry into horror of the last century. Uh, Not really. But it was a sleeper hit I found. I was, you know... Much like Better Watch Out, I looked at this one sheet in the title of this film and went, not for me. It's not for me at all. It's PG-13, another PG-13 horror. Wes, hope you're prepared for Boogeyman. Really was the Boogeyman. Is that one? 
No, a most different boogeyman. <laughs> and it's not oh. Mr. Boogity either. It's no fuck, man, Mr. Boogity. I thought that Boogeyman was another entry in the long-standing Boogeyman franchise that came out in the 1980s and was resurrected in the early 2000s. How do you know that it was resurrected in the early 2000s? Because characters drink vodka Red Bulls, and nothing says early 2000s to me more than drinking vodka Red Bulls. Um... But no, this is an unrelated film that you had to inform me about because when I saw again when I saw that one sheet, I was like, "Oh, it's a, it's a Boogeyman sequel." Uh, it's not. No, it's based on a Stephen King short story, which is how all great movies are these days, and it hit the Disney Channel. And much like that one, uh, what was it? Feast, meat, whatever it was called, um, that cannibal film. I, I thought it was a really, really good horror film to come out of the Disney vault. Like, I was pleasantly surprised with this particular film. It does have a lot of the vibe of, like, Blumhousean horror, which is, like, not cool. It, it you know, you're, you're hoping, like, for, out, for the best, it might be, like, a woman in black hammer horror, sort of new hammer kind of feel to it. Maybe we'll be lucky and it'll be as good as Malignant as far as, like, you know, 2020s horror that is mainstream that, you know, it's hit or miss. It's still hit or miss. So this one to me is a hit, even though it is a PG-13 horror film. And it is, it does have those vibes of like Blumhousian New Hammer kind of feel. It's freaking good. So I'm very excited to talk about this. Again, it's kind of late Halloween-y feeling season, even though it's not to exactly a Halloween horror film. We watched it over Halloween, so it feels like a Halloween throwback for us. You know, I don't think there's the problem with that. First of all, there's lots of amazing, some of my favorite horror movies of all time are rated PG-13, so no shame in that. Things don't gotta be violent and weird for me to like them, but it does help sometimes. And also, uh, I just want to say, like, people have been digging this, by the way, um, this uh, you know, we're obviously we're going to be doing the hits. We like to do the classics. We like to do older films because I w- kind of wallow in older films. But, you know, people have been asking for a long time for us to do more modern stuff. And so I'm happy that we're going to be tackling more stuff from 2023 and going into the future. There's one more thing that I wanted to say because, w- as you know, that we're on Spotify and Spotify does some wrap ups and stuff like that. And I just want to thank the listeners a little bit because I don't know if you've managed to see our Spotify wrap up uh, for the Dead Air podcast, but we kicked a lot of ass this year. Um, our listenership uh, has gone up 725%. Uh, so I know for a fact that uh, a lot more people have been listening to the show, enjoying it this year. Uh and so I'm glad that we're back on a regular schedule and I'm glad that you guys are listening and digging the stuff because, uh, and our, our, our most popular uh, episode of last year was the Juan episode number 200 that everyone seemed to be enjoying. And so, yeah, we want to really, and again, another PG-13 horror movie that people like. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm down with this, but yeah, I, we have heard your request for some more modern stuff. Because we know how it is. Sometimes you don't want to listen to an episode of a movie you haven't heard about. So it can't always be them moldy oldies. 
which is wild to me. And I always think, oh, we'll do these new ones and those will be popular because that's what everyone's talking about on Twitter. No one's talking about Juwan but us. And maybe that's part of it too. Uh, super, super <laughs> thanks to some longtime listeners. Of course, my husband, Chris, and our mates, you know, hello, Cass, who probably listened to this and Wes's brother, TN Comedy. Dot com, I believe, or dot net. Thomas Nichols, who has been on tour and has gone overseas with this comedy act. So he's been seeing a lot of really good success in 2023. And he even recently shared the Dead Air podcast, listening to it on a long drive because if comics are known for anything, it's their long drives and hotel stays because that's part of their act half the time, talking about hotel stays and long drives. But yeah, he was listening to our show. So that's really awesome. And thank you for sharing our show and tuning in. Thomas all the time and newer listener uh, Chris's friend Stuart from page to screen podcast has shared our show so that no doubt helps those off the wall Spotify numbers so yeah I'm really mm -hmm. I'm really glad really proud and I'm glad to spend a little bit of Christmas cheer creeping around horror movies with you Wes yes it's a tradition that I don't want to ever end uh, until I drop dead uh and then, you know, you'll have to do a podcast with my corpse or something like that. Done. Absolutely. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> That'll be horrible. <laughs> It'll smell horrible. And on that note, I'm Wes Knipe. And I'm Typical Lydia. And we'll see you in 2024. You've been listening to Dead Air. If you like this show, you can find more episodes and other content on splatterpictures.net, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. You can also find us on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. The show is edited by Lydia Peaver and hosted by Lydia Peaver and me, Wes Knight. We'll see you next time.